We're in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. A temple and the two witnesses, if you would, stand for reading of God's word. And by the way, we welcome you on Facebook. Glad that you have joined us. Verse 1, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it is given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in, that, in this manner. Then they, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. This is the word of God. Father, we are grateful that we can gather together in freedom and worship you, our God. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Open our eyes, God, to the things that you have for us today. Holy Spirit, we ask you to touch each one of us in our area of need. Thank you that you are in our midst right now, and you are working in each one of us to hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know by now, the theme of Revelations is... <laughs> Good job. Yes, Revelation. Is Jesus is coming, and Jesus is coming soon, soon, soon and soon. Thank you, Lord. Please come. Yes, last week we were introduced to a great angel. And remember, the great angel had his foot on the sea and his foot on the land, indicating that it was this, what he had in his hand, this, this open book was going to affect the whole earth, the whole earth. And remember, we spent some time saying that God owns the earth. That Satan is a temporary trespasser on this earth, but God owns the earth. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and the world who dwells within. He is founded upon the seas and established upon the oceans. God has made everything, everything belongs to him. Satan is a temporary usurper. So John is also told to take the book and to eat it. And remember, it was sweet to his lips, but bitter to his stomach. Why was it bitter? Because the word of God is bitter to those who reject God. And all these prophecies that are coming are going to be bitter to the poor earth dwellers that are trusting in Antichrist Christ, and trusting in Satan's realm rather than in Jesus Christ. And it's going to be exceedingly bitter for them. And this angel also says in verse 6 last week, there will be no more delay. That Jesus is coming. The seventh trumpet will sound and Jesus will take back planet earth, and those last bold judgments will come out and be the worst judgments of all of the tribulation. It's horrific up to this point, but it's going to be even more horrific with the bold judgments that we get into in a few weeks. Now, we also discussed that we're living in disturbing times. There's always been disturbing times, but this is particularly different in America today. We're going through something that is a one-off for America, where America is in the process of changing from a Christian nation, I think it's already changed, to a more secular nation, becoming more like the global community instead of like the community of God. We are seeing this happen right before our eyes. And it's a little bit disturbing. We get bad news 24-7 because of technology, and we're bombarded with it, as we've said so many times, and we're affected. We're affected by the things that we hear. And how are we to survive in this environment? We said this last time. We are to stand fast. 
Dig in and stand fast. Remember the scripture? 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 14. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. That is what we are to do in, the, in this culture. We are to contend earnestly for the faith, that faith, as it said in Jude 3. We are warriors, folks. Warriors in this battle for truth. Don't give up in the battle for truth. Remember, we don't trust in polls. God doesn't care about polls. Jesus doesn't take a poll and see what, how everybody's feeling and then try to pander to that. Oh, no. God is not into polls. And by the way, the polls are just demonstrating what the world wants. Remember, most of the world is in the, in the, in the kingdom of darkness. That's what the polls are reflecting. Don't ever fall for the majority. Remember, the, it's doubtful that the majority are ever correct. This week, we're going to see a temple and two witnesses. And remember, chapters 10 through 14 in Revelation are an interlude, a gap in time. He's going to be explaining some things that are happening in the middle of the tribulation, but also some of these things in the middle of the tribulation actually started at the beginning and will extend to the end. So we're getting information that is going to be very valuable to us. Now remember, we started with the seal judgments, and they were awful. Antichrist doing his thing. And then the trumpet judgments were awful, awfuler. I graduated from here in high school, and I know English. <laughs> yeah, awfuler, yeah. And then the bold judgment would be the worst time of all. Remember, it's God's wrath is being poured out on a persistently rebellious planet Earth. That is what we are seeing. In chapter 10, it's interesting that John becomes a direct participant by taking the book and then eating it. And remember, we eat the Word of God, we consume the Word of God, we take the Word of God, and we meditate on its pretexts, we contemplate its ways, we delight ourselves in the statues of God, we will not forget His Word, as it said in Psalms 119. And also in chapter 11, he becomes a direct participant, and he takes a measuring rod, and he measures the temple and the altar and the worshipers. John is measuring what I believe belongs to God. And the first thing that belongs to God in verse 1 is the Jewish remnant belong to God. Let's read this together. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood. Now, now notice the angel had to stand up. He was sitting. He's taking action. And I think this is the same angel that had the little book. And he said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. I want you to think about something. The temple and the altar and those who worship there, God is claiming for himself. And these are Jewish worshipers that are still in the sacrificial system who I think the two witnesses are going to influence at some point. They'll be dynamic enough that they will come to Christ. It'll come at the end of the tribulation. But I think it's these worshipers that are the ones that under the influence of the two witnesses leave when the abomination of desolation comes and goes to Petra for shelter. More on that in just a second. So the, the temple, the altar, those who worship there are gods. And remember, God's desire is this. Hear this. This is going to come on the overhead. Is to tabernacle or to dwell with his people. God desires a relationship with you that is close and intimate. He is not in a distance. He is not bet middlers in a distance. God is worship. You can worship him in a... No, that's deism. Deism is God created and then withdrew himself. Oh, no. God dwells with his people. He dwells with his people. 
Exodus 25, 8 says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God desires to be close to you. Isn't that great? The God of heaven who made everything is so vast wants to have a relationship with us. That is wonderful. Now, the history of the temple of God in Israel, just very briefly. First of all, Solomon built the temple. Remember, David wanted to build the temple, but he was a man of bloodshed. So he wasn't allowed to do it. His son Solomon was. And it was steeped in grandeur. But that temple was crushed in 586, 587 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because of persistent idolatry in the land. The people would turn away from God, and God says, no more, and the temple was destroyed. And they went into captivity. After 70 years, they came out of captivity, and, and Zerubbabel was given a command to build the, rebuild the temple. And this temple did not have near the grandeur of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was spectacular. Zerubbabel's temple was, was actually kind of pitiful in comparison. And the Jews don't even recognize Zerubbabel's temple as being the second temple. But they do recognize Herod's temple as being the second temple. And what did Herod do? He beautified Zerubbabel's temple. And over 40 years, he worked and worked and worked and made the temple into another grand place. And then we have Antichrist temple. That's the one that we're going to be studying today. The one that Antichrist will demand to be worshipped as God in and the abomination of desolation takes place, and then insists that everyone on earth take the mark of the beast. Now, part of this temple belongs to God. Remember, it's the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. But the Gentile portion is not. More on that in just a second. And then we have the millennial temple that will happen in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. But I want you to take a look at this temple. Now, this is a, a scale. When you go to Israel, you go to a little place here, and this is a scale that is drawn up. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Whenever you're approaching God, you always go up, and this is one entrance into the temple. This is, this is one entrance. This is the eastern gate. This is the temple entrance. Remember, Jesus says, I am the door. He's the only way for us to come to God. And then you get into the, into the different courts. This is the court of the Gentiles. No Gentile can go outside this court. This is the court of women. Right on the other side of here that you can't see is the court of Israel. And then inside of here is the holy place. And deep inside, past the veil that was torn when Jesus was crucified, is the holy of holies. I also want you to notice here that this is called the royal stoa. And it is on here that Satan tempted Jesus to jump off and say, if you just worship me, and what did Jesus say? You can serve the Lord your God only. You are to worship God only. So this is the temple, and it was glorious. This is actually, actually Herod's temple, which was actually very beautiful. And it was beautification of Zerubbabel's temple. But I want to emphasize something to you today that I think is absolutely essential that we have a grasp on. And that is the temple of the believer. That you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, God would dwell with his people in the Holy of Holies in that temple. But now he dwells within each believer. Inside us is the Holy of Holies. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now that word temple is naos, N-A-O-S, and it means holy of holies. 
God himself tabernacles or dwells within you in the holy of holy places within you. Now, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? It means that I now have full access to the presence of God at any time. We can boldly approach the throne of grace with our petitions. We can boldly go before God. In the Old Testament, the priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But no, you in the church age can approach God any time that you want with your petitions and know that you'll be heard. Know that you'll be heard. I want you to also, also think about this. Because God dwells in you, the believer Something very important must be realized. You are not your own. You do not belong to yourself anymore. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God bought you. God paid the price for you. The price was his son's life. His life for your life. It's the substitutionary atonement. You are under new ownership. You were violently taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of light, and we owe everything to our Savior and to our Lord. Now, how do we glorify God in our bodies? How do we actually pull this off? How do we actually glorify one that is so great and so wonderful? It's obedience. We obey his commands. We obey what Jesus taught. That's what we are to do. We obey what he teaches without any excuses. No flim-flamming, no justifying, no, I wouldn't have done this if they didn't do that to me. Oh, no, we obey Jesus' commands because we are followers of the Lord Jesus. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, I'll show to my Father. And my Father will love them, and I'll show myself, we'll show ourselves to them. John was told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. These are the ones that God is claiming for himself. The act of measuring seems to indicate that the area belongs to God in a special way. Now, I want to ask you something, and I hope that you know the answer to this because we have been through this many times in in our teachings at this church. But I think it's germane that we go through it again, we teach by repetition, we inculcate, teach by repetitions things that I think are very important. So what happened the moment that you were saved. The instant you said yes to the Lord Jesus, you belong to God. That's number one. There are three phases of salvation. You know this, but just for review, and if you don't know it, this is good for you to know. Phase number one, justification. That is something that we are declared righteous. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer. God now looks at us as he looks at his son, Can you believe that? (laughs) He looks at me like he looks at Jesus, pure and clean and holy, all because of the blood, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's what he has done. We are free from the penalty of sin. That is the eternal separation from God. We will never experience separation from God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, that is your promise. Phase number two, sanctification simply means we're set apart unto God. And you must know that the instant you believed, you were set apart unto God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, belonging to God. But also you are in a process of progressive sanctification where you're being conformed to the likeness of Christ, more and more like Jesus. 
You cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this process. You and God together. Phase one, all an act of God, and you simply believing. Phase two, you in concert with the Holy Spirit are growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And finally, phase three is glorification. It's the state of perfection, no longer temptable. Now, aren't you looking forward to that? How many times have you been praying and some strange, weird thing comes into your mind and you're going, where in the world did that come from? I mean, we no longer temptable, no longer having weird thoughts, free from the presence of sin. What a wonderful thing that will be. Now, Chuck Missler, in his kingdom, power, and glory, is going to, I, have, I have several slides here that I want to go through with you. Now, he has a three tenses of salvation here, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And salvation is a lifelong process. And remember this, we are looking forward to our glorification, which will happen at the rapture of the church for the church. Remember, the bride of Christ is who gets raptured. Not the Old Testament saints, not the tribulation saints. It is the bride that gets raptured and taken up to heaven. And we're looking forward to our glorification. Now, the next phase of this, I just want to go through justification. If you just put the next one up, Reagan, thank you. Justification is our new birth. We've been born again of the Spirit. Remember, this yellow here indicates life. Prior to you saying yes to Jesus Christ, this was dark and this was dead. Remember in Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no life in you. And when you believe, the Spirit of God takes a residence in you in the naos, the holy of holies, in your being. However, you're still a soul man, and your, and your thoughts, emotions, feelings, and that sort of thing are still along the lines of the flesh. And you're still living out what your mind is thinking. You're carrying out in your physical being the soul life. You haven't been totally given over yet. Now, the next slide is going to show us what happens with the indwelling spirit. Simply, again, just a little more elaboration, that your heart has changed. Your heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh. It is more malleable and more inclined to do the things that God wants. You're going to have, you have God's access to God's wisdoms, God's love, and God's power, but you still are struggling with your soul or your flesh. Next slide. Now, this is a sanctification process. This is us cooperating with our God and becoming more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ. This is what each one of us are in right now, different, different parts of our journey. The goal here is to have the spiritual man start to take dominance. What happens here, instead of making a flesh choice or an emotional choice or a self-choice, I make a faith choice. And my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions are in line with God. And what happens is I start to live out this life. Now, next slide. Again, the purpose of our salvation, just to review, we're justified, sanctified, and then we're glorified, and it's a process. Now, don't forget, the instant you said yes to Jesus, you were saved. You were saved. You belong to God. But God has you in a process of change, and that change will be complete when we are in heaven with our God and get our new bodies. Next slide. Now, you must realize that there's something that happens in each one of us. We can be 
in the sanctification process. We can be cooperating with God, and at any moment, something can slide in and quench the Holy Spirit. Sin can slide in and quench the Holy Spirit. And we are told believers can quench the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, we are warned, do not, this is a command, quench the Holy Spirit. Or if you have an NIV, is do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. So you can be living this thing out. You can have... You can have your soul, your mind, your thoughts and emotions lighted up and be doing it for God. And in an instant, we can make it a, a non-faith choice, an emotional choice that affects our lives. And we go right into living the self-life. And I don't know if that's happened to you, but I bet it has. <laughs> because that's the process that we're living in. Now the next one, this will be the, what puts out the Spirit's fire? That's a good one, Reagan. You just leave it right there. Sin puts out the Spirit's fire. Double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. This is just playing out this whole thing. We are torn between two lovers. We're torn between ourselves and our flesh, and we're torn between being obedient to God. And this struggle goes on our whole lives. And again, it ends up being that we, when we're torn between two lovers and we're not completely sold out, we're waffling back and forth, the self-life starts to dominate. And notice what happens here. There's no fruit. There's no fruit, or it's little withered, little bits of withered fruit. Little, little, instead of a big old lush grape, you got a little withered raisin or something. You know, it's just pathetic. But anyway, now the last one, single-mindedness will be the next one, Reagan. So single-mindedness, this is one that we're living all out for Christ, making faith choices for Christ. We're not double-minded. We are absolutely living this thing out for God. Now, how do you do this? How is this carried out? Living a life filled with the Holy Spirit is only accomplishable as we dwell in Christ, as we make our home in Christ, as we men know, remember, that make Christ Jesus our home. Then we carry out the life that he wants us to live, and guess what happens? Fruit is a natural byproduct of dwelling in Christ. Fruit is a natural byproduct of the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life. Now, you can go through all the phony baloney stuff in the world that you want. You can, you can use all the Christianese. You can use all the language. You can try to fake everybody out around you. But it will come out in the end that if you're making, making life choices that are emotional choices or flesh choices, it will affect the rest of your life. If you make God choices, you dwell in Christ, it will affect the rest of your life. Those principles are unchangeable immutable. They will happen. So my suggestion here is that you live all out for Jesus while you can. Now Watchman Nee calls this the normal Christian life. This is the normal Christian life, a life filled with the Holy Spirit, dominated by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to suggest to you something. This is not easy at any time in history, but I would say that it is more difficult today than it has been in any time in history because of the inputs that we have. Look at the contrary voices that come into someone's life every day. Look at the internet and what it's filled with and the information that people can tap into that is contrary to the Word of God, that messes with people's minds. Never in the history of the world have we had this type of pressure leveraged on a group of people, on a population of people. 
So it's harder today because we're bombarded with these contrary voices. What are we to do? Well, we answered that question last week when Daniel in Daniel 1.8 determined in his heart that he would not be defiled by the king's delicacies. He determined in his heart ahead of time that I'm not buying into the garbage of the world. I'm not buying into the indoctrination of the Internet. I'm not buying into the indoctrination of my university professors. I'm sticking with the Word of God. So that's that's what we have to do. And remember, God is patient. He's long-suffering. But there is a time when God says enough to a person or to a nation. And that's scary. That's scary. Now, uh, remember, part of the temple belonged to God, and he, he claimed the things that belonged to him, the temple, the, the altar, the worshipers, but the Gentiles didn't. So in, part, in verse 2, part of the temple is left to the Gentiles. But leave out the court which is in the outside, the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Notice they didn't take it. It was given. God allowed this to happen, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's the first half of the tri- that's the second half of the tribulation period. So 42 months, 1260 days is half of the tribulation period. Now, why not measure the court of the Gentiles? You know the answer to this, because the Gentiles or the earth dwellers have rejected God and are not part of His property are not part of his property. How long will it last? 42 months, the last half. Remember, Satan, the viper that he is, will promise the world to the Jewish people. He'll promise the world to the earth dwellers. At the middle of the tribulation, he will turn on them like a viper, and he will insist that he's worshipped as God. The abomination of desolation. Daniel 9.27 gives us some information on this. He will break his covenant in the middle of the week. He'll bring it into sacrifice. He'll take full control of the temple, and he demands to be worshipped as God. I want to bring up to you another point here that I think that it's important that you remember. There's something called the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles. Now, we know from our studies that's from Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., until the second coming of Messiah. What does that all mean, the time of the Gentiles? It means that Jerusalem from 586 B.C. has been occupied at some level by the Gentile nations and will be occupiers until the second coming of Christ when Messiah comes and takes the whole thing back. Hear what Luke said in Luke 21, 24. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled, and that is when Jesus Christ returns and takes over this planet and takes back what is rightly his. Now, when you go to Israel today and you go to Jerusalem, which is their holy city, one-fourth is Jewish, one-fourth is Arminian, one-fourth is Muslim, and one-fourth is Christians. Three-fourths of those are Gentiles. Mostly, I mean, there are some Jewish Christians, but vast majority would be Gentiles. It's still trodden down by the Gentiles, even to this day. And the court of the Gentiles will not be under Jewish control. Now, in verse 3, we're going to be introduced to these two guys. 
These two strange guys, these two witnesses. Verse 3. And I will, now I want you to notice this. I will give power to my two witnesses. Notice how, how, how God claims ownership here. He will give them the power. They are his. Just like we are his. There's ownership that is claimed here. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And I went to the internet and I looked at this guy clothed in sackcloth. And it was so nasty, I decided not to put it up here as a picture because it's just pitiful looking. You can just imagine what these guys look like. They looked awful, clothed in sackcloth. That's mourning, grieving. The two witnesses are empowered by God. And listen to this. It's literally two against the world. And remember, never forget, God and you are a majority. You must never forget that. They're empowered to witness 1,260 days. And what are they, what are they witnessing? What are they prophesying about? What do you think they're prophesying about? I bet they're prophesying about Messiah. I bet they're prophesying about the true God. I bet they're telling these people, repent, turn, live. I bet that's what they're saying. These worshipers that are hearing this, these two witnesses, they belong to God. And we know these Jewish believers are still immersed in a sacrificial system. These worshipers are not, they do not belong to Messiah yet. But I think they're getting enough inclination from these two witnesses that when the abomination of desolation comes, these people don't fall for it and they bust out. They remember Daniel 9.27. They remember what the prophet said in the Old Testament. And they run to Petra and are, are protected by God. For the last three and a half years. These witnesses are in sackcloth. And they are mourning. But why are they mourning? And I think it's this. They mourn the lost state of humanity. That so many people are blinded to the truth. It is just heartbreaking. The earth dwellers are deceived. And they are not worshiping the true God. And their ministry like ours today. Is tell people about the real Jesus. Tell them about the real Jesus. These two prophets' words to the rejecting earth dwellers will be bitter indeed. They will be hated for what they are saying. And how do we know this? Because in verse 10, which we'll get to next week, the whole earth rejoices over their death. Just ecstatic that these two guys are now out of action. All the earth dwellers are being convicted for three and a half years about Jesus, about what's coming, about turning and living. And they don't want to hear the truth. They do not want to hear the truth. They are hiding. They are running from the truth, hiding from the truth. It's worth noting this, that our world system, which is, by the way, under the control of Satan, hates those who share the truth of God with them. It's getting more so just vehement hate. Now, you can mention a generic God, and people will be acceptable of that. But if you mention Jesus, that name causes enormous division in our world today. Remember, it takes God to open blind eyes. It takes God to soften hearts. The new birth is a miracle of God. 
The two lampstands in verse 4. We've got two lampstands, two olive trees. Now, what in the world is that? What does that refer to? Who are these guys? Well, verse 4. These are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Notice that there's no equivocation here. The God of the earth is the true God, not Satan, not Antichrist, not the earth, what the earth dwellers are worshiping, not what the rest of the world thinks is God. It is the true God of the earth. Standing before the God of the earth. There's much speculation about these guys. Have you ever done a study on this? You might have 20 views on who these two people are. 20 views. The most popular are these. Moses and Elijah because of those miracles. And Enoch and Elijah because they did not taste physical death. The truth is this. No one knows. No one knows who these guys are. You can make all kinds of supposition. But whoever they are, they're going to be like the two lampstands or the olive trees that we see in Zechariah chapter 4. Now, who were these guys? For time, I'm not going to go there. They were Joshua, who was the priest, not the Joshua that led the people of Israel, but Joshua priest, and Zerubbabel, a civil leader. Now, what are these guys going to do? Remember, Zerubbabel has been given a commission to go back and rebuild the temple. He feels absolutely inadequate for the task. Ever been there? Ever have God ask you to do something? I can't do that. I'm inadequate for that task. Go ask someone else. God says, no, it's you. And he takes Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, and he puts into them something interesting. They will accomplish the work of rebuilding a temple. How? Through the Holy Spirit's power. That's how we accomplish anything in ministry, anything in our life. You want to be a good parent, Holy Spirit power. You want to be a good husband, good wife, Holy Spirit's power. It has to be something way different than us because we are depraved sinners who want our own way. And it has to be God working in us to change us. The Holy Spirit, it's not their power. The two witnesses in our text will accomplish the work of God by the Holy Spirit's power. It's the same for us today. We can only do the work of God through the Spirit's power. Now you realize that, don't you? Please, say yes. Just, somebody, just somebody, Anybody, just nod yes. Any, any, throw something at me. We need the Holy Spirit to be the rod of iron up our spines to accomplish anything of value. Any, anything that we do on our own is worthless. And remember Zechariah 4, 6, he puts it so great. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It will be accomplished through the Spirit's power, not our power. And Zerubbabel was also told when he was so discouraged over the temple and how it was going, he was told not to despise the day of small things. This is big for me, God is telling Zerubbabel. This is is a big thing. Whatever you're doing here, you're doing it for me. It's big. It might not be big in the world's eyes, but it's big to God. And if it's big to God, it's big to us. That's what we need to remember. What is, what is happening in our world today? We see overt attacks on Christianity throughout the world. And it's even becoming more uncomfortable in America to be a Christian. Folks, we have three phases of persecution. Phase one is disinformation. Phase two is discrimination, which we are feeling somewhat now. And in phase three is persecution. And do you know that the majority of the world that are Christians, are in phase three with overt persecution, dying for their faith. 
These two witnesses, folks, were invulnerable. And let me suggest to you, you are invulnerable until God says it's time for you to come home. You are invulnerable. And that takes us into verse 5 and 6. These two witnesses are invulnerable. Wouldn't you like to have this? And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Devours, I mean, I'm just thinking about being on the freeway and that trucker just... <laughs> And I could just give him a, you know, a lot. Yeah, well, just, just me. Sorry. Sorry, Lord. Don't do that. Yeah. And devours them. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Look at a drought for three and a half years while these guys are prophesying. You think the world's not going to hate them? They know it's coming from them. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Sounds like Moses, doesn't it? And to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. They do whatever they want. It's amazing amount of power that God has given them. Now, I want you to think about something. These guys are going to be martyred. Many people in our world are martyred today. We know that. We feel a strain in this country, and we have lots of freedom. We have not experienced persecution yet. You hear that? We're in discrimination right now. We're we at the persecution yet. But we feel the strain of something's changing. Do you, do you agree? I mean, we are feeling that. Think about this. Many worry today about how we might stand during times of duress or persecution. How will I ever be able to stand like these guys did or other people did in history? And remember, it seems that you may be called to go beyond your comfort zone. And hear this, because we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture does not mean that we are not going to suffer. Now, I'm hoping that we don't. But if you look at the rest of the world, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is suffering right now. And I bet they think they're in tribulation the way that they're dying, the way that they're dying for their faith. Look at the rest of the world. The persecution is off the charts. And think about this. When it's my time, when it's my time, what will I say? What will I do? Now, I've thought about this, but you might have thought about this. And I would suggest you not to worry. Hear the words of Jesus. That's what we want to turn to, our shepherd. Matthew 10, 19 and 20 says this. But when they deliver you, now, who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the disciples who are going to be delivered up, and each one of them are going to die violently except for John, and he was treated violently. Okay? So this is when Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Thomas, Phyllis, Bartholomew, when they do this, this is going to happen to you dudes. Now, how would you like to Jesus be pointing right at you between the peepers and say, when this happens to you? Because we're always hoping we're the ones that escape that. We want the escape clause. We want the rapture or something else to get us out of this. I don't know what's going to happen, but when they deliver you, he says this, do not worry. Isn't that a great word for us? Do not worry. That's a command. You know, that's an imperative. Remember, remember, the, remember the thing, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Well, worry, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. It accomplishes Nothing. Nothing. Do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour. Isn't that great? 
God's going to tell you what to say. I'm going to need that because I'm going to be in such a panic state unless he gives me courage. I can't do this. What you should speak, for it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. It won't be you who stands. It will be the Holy Spirit in you holding you up. It's going to be holding me up by the armpits. You can know it's not going to be me. And I'll tell you, that's good news. You know why? Because you can't mess up. You can't mess up. And that's like a yay. And I don't think we need to worry a ditzel. I looked up ditzel. It doesn't, it's not really a word. But you don't have to worry a little speck of it. it no, don't have to do it. And can you imagine the frustration of the Antichrist during this time? The, the information that they're giving out is so contrary to what Antichrist is promoting. And they try to kill them, and they are in turn killed themselves. They cannot be harmed for 1,260 days, invulnerable. No rain speaks of Elijah. Remember Elijah? Remember the 400 Baal prophets? The 400 Ashtoreth prophets, it was 800 to 1. And Elijah was victorious because his God was with him. Remember, you and God are a majority. And he had Moses before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and 10 plagues. And Moses and God were a majority. Both performed off-the-chart miracles. Both had immense opposition. Most had high, both of them had high-stress situations. We can expect this. High stress. Both were empowered by God. Both were successful because of God. And I believe it will be the same for us when it's our time to shine for our Lord. It will be God doing this in us through the Holy Spirit's power. Watch this. The key, the key to your success is this. Number one, yield to God's plan. Instead of when the pressure comes, Oh, no, why can't you send Sammy? I mean, Sammy can do this a lot better than... No, he's calling you to do it. He's calling you to stand at a specific time and a specific place for the truth. Whether it's a die for your faith or stand in your workplace or stand in your family or stand wherever it is, he will give you the strength to do it. Yield to God's plan. Secondly, stay close to God. We can't do it in our strength. And thirdly, trust him. It gets really hard to trust him when things are falling apart all around you. You trust him all the way to the end. We burst through the finish line trusting him. And remember Richard Farmer, we've said this like 12,000 times. This is 12,001. I will trust in the Lord until I die. Now, when do these two witnesses prophesy? Some people believe in the first half. Some people believe in the second half of the tribulation. And there's really good scholars that differ on this. And I don't know how germane this is to you, but when you're doing a study like this, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, please tell me. I mean, I really want to know which side they're doing this on. And I think I, well, I don't know if I figured it out, but at least this is how it was impressed upon me. I believe it's the first half of the tribulation during the rise of the Antichrist. And I believe it for this reason. I think these two witnesses come on the scene. And I believe that they just might be the ones that influenced the 144,000 that we saw in Revelation chapter 7. I wonder if those are the ones that are influenced those guys to be the witnesses. So at the beginning of the tribulation, we have the 144,000. We have the two witnesses. 
And in Revelation 14, 6, at the middle of the tribulation, you have the angel flying around with the gospel of God. All at the first half of the tribulation, all warning the earth dwellers not to take the mark of the beast, all telling them, don't go the way of Satan. And think, also think about this. Let's see if I can get this in order. We know that Antichrist will have a mortal wound and that he will die and he will be raised again. Whether this is a phony resurrection or a real resurrection, nobody really knows, but it looks like the guy died, he was resurrected, and I think he did die, and I'll share you with a moment why I believe that. So in 13.3, we see there's a mortal head wound of some sort. We see in 13.12 that the wound is healed. We also see in Revelation 12 that there's war in heaven and Satan is kicked out of heaven and thrown to earth. I think that it's that time when he's thrown to earth that he indwells the Antichrist. And we'll get more into that when we get into Revelation 13. I think there's great evidence for that. When he indwells the Antichrist, he insists to be worshipped as God. He insists that everybody takes the mark of the beast. And it is at this point, I believe, that he kills the two witnesses. Now, that's the sequence of events as, as I can unravel it. Now, Revelation 12, 7, why I believe that he's actually dead and raised. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's the Antichrist. He's in the bottomless pit. That means he's dead. Okay, that's the, other, that's the afterworld. That's, that's the place where people go when they die. Will make war against them. Who's the them? The two prophets. He will overcome them, kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street for three and a half days. Then God raises them from the dead, and their enemies will witness this in chapter 11, verse 12. Now, we've talked about the things that are God's. The temple, the altar, the worshipers, the two witnesses. Let's close with the temple and the two witnesses. Now, a lot of things are hazy when you're talking about these things. But what I'm going to share with you now is not hazy. Not hazy. Not up for discussion, at least to me. What we know to be true, number one, there will be a future millennial temple. Why? God said so. Just that simple. There will be a reestablishment of Jewish sacrifices in that temple. Why? God says so. The Antichrist will lie and break his word after 1260 days. Why do I believe that? Because God said so. You got it. Okay, there you're on it now. The two witnesses will be a thorn in Antichrist's side and the earth dweller's side for 1260 days. Why? Because God said so. And these two witnesses will be invulnerable until God says so. And he takes them home. Now think about this. What is coming to planet Earth is mind-blowing. We go through this study, it is off the charts, mind-blowing. Most deny that this stuff will happen. Most want to ignore the signs of the times. This will come up. And this is to be expected by non-believers. But you know what's shocking? Much of the church feels the same way, the so-called church. Remember, God holds his people responsible to know what has been prophesied. And I believe the modern-day church has done an abysmal job of this. Most churches will not touch prophecy 
because it's too scary. It's too, they feel it's too depressing. It's too weird. God expects us to know. He holds us responsible. And I believe it is the same for us today. God wants us to know what is going on, what's taking place. He wants us to know the signs of the time, to take them seriously, to not be deceived and not be indoctrinated by the majority in the world, not to be moved by the polls. Is this what everybody seeks? We are not to do that. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44. Hear the words of Jesus himself. Speaking to the people of Israel. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday. Jesus is being hailed as king. And they are coming in. He comes into the city and they are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now Jesus. Save us from Rome. Save us from this from these occupiers, save us now. And Jesus accepts his kingship at that time, but he knows what's going to happen ultimately. He knows that in a few days, these fickle people, instead of saying, Hosanna, your wonderful king, will be crying, crucify him. And then read, we pick up the narrative in verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. That's Jerusalem. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace. You should have known it, people. You should have known it. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, and the temple was totally dismantled. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know when I was coming. You didn't listen to the prophets. You didn't study the Old Testament prophecies. And you were blinded as to who I was. This prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus, a Roman general with his legions, leveled Rome and did not leave one stone upon another because they did not know the time of their visitation. They rejected Jesus as their king. These same that were saying Hosanna in a few days would say crucify him. Today, much of our world ignores the real Jesus. Do you understand that? Most of our world today ignores the real Jesus. The make-believe Jesus they will follow. The Jesus they can boss around. The Jesus that will give them anything that they want. Anything that they're, any, any whim that they have, that's the one they'll believe. They want to control Jesus. They want to just-in-case Jesus. Just in case you're there, Jesus, I'll pull you out every now and then when I want you and have you do exactly what I want when I want. Who's God then? Good question. The real Jesus demands that his followers deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. That's, that's the following the real Jesus. Most people say, no way. For most Westerners, that's too rigid. That's too hard. I don't want that. Remember we had the little powder puff guy up there last week, little Pillsbury Doughboy? Pillsbury Doughboy don't want anything hard. Wants everything easy. Everyone must deal with the real Jesus. Every atheist, every false religion follower, every world lover must deal with the real Jesus. And every person who's ever lived, 
must answer these two questions. So if you have zoned out at this time, please come back in for just five minutes. Pay attention for five minutes. Hear this. Two questions. Number one, everyone's got to deal with this. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Spoken in Matthew 16, 13, as Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, looking at the side of the mountain with idols of Pan, the Pan gods, the demon gods, carved into the mountains. He looks at that, points at his disciples, who do men say that I am? And his disciples say this. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah. Some say Elijah or one of the prophets. And he says, looks right at them between the eyes. He looks at us today and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Who is Jesus really? Who do men say that I am? Question number one. But question number two is this. Matthew 27, 22, the setting is Pilate. Jesus has been being crucified. He's beaten to a pulp, crown of thorns on his head. His visage is marred more than any person, it says in Isaiah 52. Pilate drags him out, knowing he's an innocent man. He's hoping that they see the beaten Jesus and how pathetic he looks. And he says this question to the group. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Who do men say that I am? And what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? This is the seminal question for humanity. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Remember, every human is born dead in their trespasses and sins. Every one of us are separated from a holy God because of our sin. But everyone can be brought back into right relationship with the Holy God by simply doing what John 1.12 says. Yet all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's a tech down. That is born again into the family of God. All we do is believe, put our trust in, commit ourselves to Jesus. The instant you do that, you are in the family of God. Let me ask you this question one more time. What will you, who do you say that Jesus is? And what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Your answer to these two questions will determine your eternal destiny. The greatest miracle that you'll ever witness is not blind eyes being opened, not little lame legs being made whole, not someone hearing or a demon being cast out or anything like that. The greatest witness is this, is when someone who has taken from being dead in their trespasses and sins and given eternal life simply by believing in Jesus Christ, that is the greatest miracle ever. Death to life. Alan Redpath says this, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, and that's the truth. But the making of a saint is the task of a lifetime. You who have believed are in that making of a saint task of a lifetime. The future of planet earth is scary. I would admit that. We got to be real and truthful. There is cause to concern for concern. There, there really is. There are changes that are happening that are off the, off the charts as far as whatever's happened in this country before, even in our world. But it's not so concerning for those who belong to the savior. 
If you belong to the Savior, Jesus is our blessed hope. Now, what I have shared with you is all true. The ball is in your court. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Or behold, today is the day that I say, I will follow you, Jesus. I might have been a saved person, justified. Remember, justified, phase one. But I'm not doing that phase two thing, that sanctification thing. I don't really want to get too much involved with that. Maybe this is the day you're going to say, I want to be all out for you, Jesus. Because it matters. It matters. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have been a Christian living a compromised life, that you have said, I'm going to do my thing, I know I'm saved, I know I'm okay, I know I'm going to go to heaven, I would, I would plead with you to turn your life completely over to Jesus. Allow that light to shine all the way through into your life where people are affected by your life. Not where it's blocked, where it's dark out here, where people see you. You might be saved, but nobody can see a, a ditzel about your salvation because you're still soulish. You're still acting in your thoughts, feelings, and emotions of the old person. No, we want to change. We are representing our king. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which are God's. That's the truth of the scriptures. Come to Jesus, folks. Recommit your life to Jesus. Be all out for him. This is not a time for half-in Christianity. If you're half-in, you're going to stumble. You're going to stumble. Be all out. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you that you've given us this word to live by. Holy Spirit, please do your work in each one of our hearts. I know that you've spoken to me. And I know that you've spoken to other people. Draw us close to you, Lord. The spirit and the bride say, come. The church says, come. Everyone is pulling for you to come and give your life to Jesus. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.